I'd like to thank my sponsors, Voyager and Electronium, for making this episode possible. Stay tuned for more info on them later. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Today's guest is an original cypherpunk. Jameson discovered Bitcoin early and has done extensive work advocating for its privacy and protection from governments and other threats. He's the founder of one of my favorite companies who I use, uh, Casa, where Bitcoin holders can protect their assets like never before. Jameson Lotman, thanks so much for taking the time to, to come on the show. No, it's great to be here. I've actually been a Scott Milker fan since the early days. Uh, I was actually looking back on my tweets and I found one from 2014 where I was telling uh, Nick Carey at Blockchain to listen to your stuff. It's I mean, when we first connected, I that like blew my mind. <laughs> Absolutely, because I've been kind of like obviously quietly following you for for such a long time in the, in the Bitcoin space, and then I found out that you had been like blasting ball of notes in your in your car. That was pretty cool. Um, so before we get into the questions, uh, once again, everyone, you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where twice a week I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports. Politics. This show is powered by Blockworks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in their network. You can check them out at blockworksgroup.io. Now, if you like the podcast, you follow me on Twitter, you need to check out my website and join the newsletter. You can do both those things at thewolfofallstreets.io. So now that we're done with that part, let's get into what's actually interesting here. So um, obviously, you were a very early adopter. You've been in this space. People know that uh, you've been an advocate for Bitcoin for a very long time. How did your Bitcoin journey sort of sort of start? Both from the technical perspective and philosophical. I mean, I have been a programmer my entire career, got a computer science degree. And so I hung out on a lot of the nerd sites. I'm pretty sure that the the time that I finally actually decided to look into Bitcoin was from a Slashdot article. I know I had heard of it a few times before then on other uh, geeky tech sites and generally dismissed it. But that third or fourth time I heard about it is when I actually went and read the white paper. And that's when the technical side of me was like, oh, snap, you know, this is actually a very elegant solution. And I don't think that it's going to you know, get hacked and cause everybody to lose their money. It's actually uh, much more robust than I assumed that it was going to be because you know, nothing like that had ever existed before. So, you know, that got me intrigued from the technical side. And then on the philosophical side, once I really started thinking about, you know, what is money, because most people don't go that deep, they just use what's given to them. Then I realized that you know, money as this abstract concept is something that should not be controlled by any single group. It's something that it really ought to be a, you know, a consensus driven project where anyone who cares can chip in and say, I think the ideal money should work like this. So money as an open source project, I thought was a really fascinating concept and basically decided at that point that I wanted to understand this Bitcoin thing as much as possible. And after doing some uh, side projects for a few years, I was eventually lucky enough that you know, venture capital flowed into the space and I was able to just work on it full time. And what year was that? And, and what did that look like when venture capital first came into the space? Was it Casa? Was it something else? What were you working on at that point? Yeah. So when I realized that I was already spending most of my waking hours thinking about Bitcoin and shirking my regular job duties, uh, it was like late 2014 when I started looking at, uh, at jobs. I, I actually like applied at Coinbase and a few other places. And uh, I, however, did not want to move to Silicon Valley. So that made it a little bit trickier. And I ended up actually getting a job building infrastructure at BitGo doing multi-sig uh, enterprise, you know, sort of hot wallet handling for exchanges and, and other payment processors. And so that's where I really got to learn a lot more about the sort of cybersecurity aspects of the space. And, uh, you know, we had a wild ride from, you know, 2015 through 2017, just trying to keep up with everything. And then it was early 2018 when I basically decided to pivot very slightly and instead of focusing on uh, enterprise Bitcoin security and crypto key management, instead now I'm focusing on individual uh, key management, trying to help normal people be their own bank and really attain the promise that Bitcoin has always made it technically possible, but has usually been out of reach for most people. 
That, that's interesting. You and I have discussed this before separately, but it's sort of like the evolutionary chart of security for people, right? You, you come into Bitcoin, you buy some Bitcoin on an exchange. Okay, fine. It's safe. Then you see a story about a hack and you move on to maybe be self-custody. You buy a ledger or something like that. And then it grows and you start to worry about yourself as your you know, single point of failure. If I die, if I forget it, if I bump my head, all these things. And then I think you eventually land at, at multi-sig. So what is it about that drove you to focus more on retail? And, and why do you think that people should be that concerned about their, their security and securing their assets? I felt like we had done a pretty good job progressing enterprise security. And really, like as of today, there are a lot of best practices. There's even the cryptocurrency uh, security standard, which if exchanges and other enterprises adhere to the recommendations of even tier one of that standard, then it's pretty unlikely that they're going to get hacked. Now, we still see hacks happen all the time because new companies come into the space, new exchanges pop up, and they don't know jack about Bitcoin security or crypto security. And they make the same mistakes that a lot of people have made before. And so that's why we're going to keep seeing those type of hacks. But I believe that like, the, the best practices already exist. So like if you actually care enough to look into it, then a dedicated team of experts can secure uh, private key material pretty well. However, for the individual to do that, it's still a really high learning curve. It, it can take days, weeks, months of education to, to learn not just the basics, but then like kind of what you were talking about, you get into more and more edge cases of things that are less likely to happen. But still, when we're talking about something where a single catastrophic mistake can cause you to lose everything, then you want to have like all the bases covered. So I realized that even after working full-time doing Bitcoin key management for three years, my own personal setup was still a huge pain to, to actually keep updated. I was spending basically a weekend every year. At the, at the turn of the year, I would have a, a little calendar reminder that said, okay, update all your cold storage. You know, this is going to be a really boring uh, pain in the ass, but you've got to do it because you know, a lot of your net worth is tied up in this stuff. So um, I realized if it, it was that big of a pain for me, then the vast majority of people were not going to follow many of the best practices. And at, at the like micro level, you know, that means that these individuals are going to be less secure. They might uh, end up losing their money. But at the macro level, it's even more concerning because I think that that means that more people are going to just be lazy and leave their money with third-party custodians. And then we're just right back where we started with or we just reinvented the banking system all over again. And that creates a systemic risk. And I am concerned about where we might end up decades from now. Uh, because if you really want Bitcoin to be like the world reserve currency, you have to think of this in terms of generations. Um, and if we keep sliding in the direction that it seems like we're going, then having the vast majority of keys held by a small number of entities creates new types of attack vectors. And I don't want us to ever have to worry about that. So there's the security side, obviously, and then you have to think ahead of the security side, but there's also the philosophical side that you just touched on, which is if everything's just going to become another bank for Bitcoin, what was, what was the point, right? Um, you know, the, the whole appeal for people who get it, I guess, is to be your own bank and somewhat opt out of the, uh, opt out of the system, right? Yeah. So it's funny because when you get really deep into it, it, it seems like almost everything that there is to uh, talk about Bitcoin has already been talked about. Like if you go trawling through the early 2009, 2010 Bitcoin talk posts, and it was actually Hal Finney uh, who originally was uh, envisioning Bitcoin as ending up like that, where the vast majority of Bitcoin was held by some sort of custodians. And he seemed to think that, you know, that was the natural way for the system to scale. But um, I think that there's still plenty of opportunity for us to try to prevent a future like that from happening. So 
the argument was kind of, you know, sure, you'd still have a lot of people that were sort of voluntarily trusting third parties, but at least you wouldn't have a single central bank that could then easily debase the currency. So even if we got into that situation, there's an argument that at least maybe the 21 million, you know, total supply would stay the same. But I would argue that, uh, the the guarantees around that become a lot weaker as the the number of coins that are held by uh, different entities you know continues to consolidate. It's interesting though because like um, the community in general and myself included, like if you're talking about the price of Bitcoin, you see a lot of these. Um, the big news is very bullish, right? The OCC saying that banks can custody Bitcoin, Kraken becoming a bank in. Wyoming, you know, uh, PayPal, Venmo, Square, these huge things. But I mean, to your point, maybe that's good for price, but not good for Bitcoin long term. Is that, I mean, is that somewhat yeah, accurate? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of comes down to coordination costs, right? Is that um, the whole point of Bitcoin as a protocol is to create this machine consensus that essentially automates the coordination of the auditing of the financial system. And that is great. Like that's where the real value of this system is. It's actually efficient from a like global coordination uh, mechanism, even though we're burning a ton of energy to secure it. It's arguably more efficient than having a lot of human auditors trying to come to consensus, you know, right. on a, a daily basis. But then uh, at the human level, the, the problem is that the machine consensus, while that is a very low level of like the Bitcoin network and the Bitcoin protocol, beneath that, there is always the human consensus level. It's like humans can always theoretically come to a new consensus to change the rules of the system if they update the code that they're running. And then the question becomes, how could that potentially be weaponized and become an attack vector if the number of humans who have to coordinate that are you know, small enough that they can actually come to an agreement about something that perhaps the wider ecosystem does not agree about? And of course, that's where you get into all the, the scaling war stuff, the you know, 2x and, uh, and uh, Bitcoin Cash hard fork and all the other stuff of like, who actually decides the changes uh, and are they able to like pull along the rest of the majority of the system, even if they are in disagreement? We also hear that mining is highly centralized, right? I mean, that the, uh, it's four or five companies, whatever, doing the bulk of, you know, all uh, are controlling bulk of the hash rate. So is that another concern you know, similar to what you're discussing or is that something separate? Um, you know, it's, it's kind of related, but it's got its own complexities. I actually wrote a blog post a couple of months ago, uh, entitled like, uh, does, uh, China's, you know, mining power pose a threat to Bitcoin. And that I think becomes an issue if you're talking about nation state attacks, like what could a nation state that like nationalize all the miners within their borders possibly do? And, the nice thing about mining is that it doesn't allow you to change the rules of the system. Uh, it only allows you to decide, you know, which blocks are going into the blockchain and they still have to be valid. So the, the biggest attack, well, two different attacks that could really happen. One is that if a miner already has a lot of money, they can double spend their own money and they would right. most likely be attacking exchanges. And from a nation state uh, standpoint, uh, if if like China was going to do that, then I would like start attacking the American exchanges and the European exchanges, and you know try to steal all the, the as many coins as possible from them. Um, the sort of nuclear option that a, a nation state could do is to just censor everything. You know, only create uh, empty blocks. Don't allow any transactions to go into the blockchain, and you know that could cause a massive loss of confidence. But then there's a question of like, how long do they sustain that? Because it's not cheap to do. So there's always other counters to this. So like you can go through all possible different paths of what could happen. And, and ultimately, like the network and the global uh, 
community, as it were, would notice very quickly if these type of shenanigans happen. And so right. then, like I said, we, we, we would know that something funky was going on at the machine consensus level. We fall back to the human consensus level, and then we have to decide what do we do. The nuclear option there is you could potentially nullify all of the, the miner's hardware by changing the uh, algorithm for mining. And you know that would kind of be like a massive reset and probably like pushes back to GPU mining for a while. But um, you know, something we want to avoid. And the nice thing is that I think from a mining standpoint, it seems like it's becoming more competitive. It seems like we're seeing more um, miners that are using like renewables and, and things like uh, captured like excess natural gas and stuff. And they're basically dispersing throughout the world. So it's not all just going to be like, Chinese hydro mining, uh, but rather uh, a diversity of different cheap renewable energy sources all over the world. Yeah, I'm blanking on the company level something, but uh, they're in Texas and I know that they're selling a ton of uh, electricity back to the grid to offset the, the costs and make sure that it's reused. I mean, there's going to be novel solutions for the electricity problem, you have to imagine. I mean, in a world where uh, we have this many smart people who are working on it, you know, I don't think that that's going to be a huge issue. So you touched on definitely the nation state, I guess, threat to Bitcoin. What are the other threats to the future of Bitcoin, or at least the future that you, the ideal future of Bitcoin in your mind? Are the biggest threats governments? Is it companies? Is it hacks? What, what is it? Well, I've said for, I think, quite a few years that I felt like the biggest threat to Bitcoin was apathy. So that, that basically means that, you know, we get stuck where we are right now. We, we stop growing and it remains a fairly niche thing. Now, you know, with the news just in the, the recent weeks and months and you know all the crazy stuff going on this year from a macro standpoint it seems highly unlikely you know it seems like we are trending in the right direction there where uh, as an asset bitcoin is actually becoming more and more accepted that it it's not going away that it is actually something that you can depend upon so I'm, I'm fairly confident there that, you know, the momentum and the network effect is already high enough that it's not going anywhere. And I'm even somewhat uh, optimistic that the nation state threat is less of an issue because I... I believe, and we've heard uh, a number of reports that there are plenty of politicians who you know are already invested. Like the politicians aren't stupid; they know how the game works, and you know they they want to opt out of the current system as well. So you know that of course changes the incentives. Of it's it's unlikely that nation states are going to try to you know, ban Bitcoin if a lot of the politicians already own it. Oh, yeah, I mean, they'd much rather capitalize it than kill it, right? Um, like, yeah, and like that, anything that's the thing else. is uh, Bitcoin works because, you know, the incentives are aligned and, and greed is good and it makes uh, people predictable. And as you said, um, you know, uh, they know better than anyone else the hazards of policy, right? I mean, it, your, your average politician in Washington has to be aware of the effects of endless money printing and QE and, and failed. So you talked about apathy as being the biggest threat, which I think is really interesting. And I agree with you. I think that's not a threat anymore. If that was going to happen, wouldn't it have happened when you know we saw the bubble pop in 2018, 19? I mean, you've been in this for almost 10 years, you know, almost a decade. Isn't this like the maximalist wet dream scenario right now. I mean, that's, it's what you guys have been saying was going to happen. The, the money printing and the sort of all of these issues with monetary policy, isn't it here? I mean, isn't this the time? Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard not to have uh, like the schadenfreude or, or whatever. Um, I, I tell some people that, you know, What's really better than you know the price going up orders of magnitude? What what is really more um, comforting to me is being right. Is it's like uh, I'm basically being proven that I wasn't crazy uh, for so many years. You know, so many people looked down on me and said that I was you know the crazy libertarian nut job who uh, was talking about things that were never going to happen and. Uh, you know, it, it was, there was never any guarantee that it was going to happen this quickly. That was really, I would say, the biggest surprise long. is that um, when I first bought Bitcoin, 
uh, as an asset. I did so as a hedge. I didn't think, oh, this thing is going to make me rich. I was rather that, you know, I knew that over the course of my life that my dollars were going to become worth less. And so I was going to put them into a system that seemed uh, like it was less likely uh, to decrease in value. And um, I am not an investor or really, I'm not, I'm a terrible trader. Oh my goodness. Uh, I would say the, <laughs> the vast majority of my trades over the years have been losers. There haven't been many of them. Um, like the only, the only really good trades that I would say I've done over the past uh, decade. Um, I've had a couple good stock trades like uh, Netflix and Amazon. Um, on the crypto side, obviously dollars to, to Bitcoin has been good. I, I've, um, I've lost money on most of my other like crypto to crypto trades, but the only crypto to crypto trade that has turned out really well for me is selling off all my Bitcoin forks for more Bitcoin. But even then, I would have done better if I had sold them for fiat and then you know waited for the market to crash and then bought more Bitcoin. But you know, yeah, I know it's perfect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, traders lose money. That's the way it is. And I mean, you know, uh, wealth is accumulated by you know, certainly in a space like this by just being early and believing and buying and forgetting about it. And I'm assuming that's largely what you've done. I mean, they say 95% of traders lose everything. So, yeah. And you know, it's hard to put a number on it, but I would say that the vast majority of people who got in really early did not hold through Correct. multiple bubbles. And the only reason why I have held through multiple bubbles is because I've always considered this to be a you know, multi-generational asset. I was not trying to you know, flip it into something else. I didn't need the money to sell, to, to buy other things. Like I, I've always been privileged enough to have the skills to you know, have high paying software engineering jobs. So this, this entire time, I've just continued living real, basically tried to continue living like I'm only earning like 50 or $60,000 a year and not inflating my lifestyle. And, you know, perhaps someday I'll, you know, go buy a private island or something, but yeah. um, I don't feel the need to do that because we still have so much work to do. And, and this really has always been more of an ideological mission for me rather than a, a profit driven thing. So interesting because you hear the criticism all the time, I'll call it a criticism that people who were early and got rich were lucky, right? And you hear it all the time, like, oh, they just happened to buy it. But you touched on the most important point, buying it is nothing. Holding it through all of that requires just hands of steel, right? So, not, I mean, there's not no only luck. That, um, there, there, I would say there is also luck in the sense that there are always novel types of attacks and forms of loss that are being discovered. And so I've had my fair share of close calls where I almost lost a lot of money. Um, and uh, this actually, you'll probably find this funny, but um, because of what a terrible trader I am and just like not really understanding trading very much, I lost a decent amount of money uh, by accidentally crashing the Litecoin market on Coinbase. <laughs> so, was it like a fat finger? You put too many it was zeros? Not, no, I, um, <laughs> I just did not understand how illiquid Litecoin was at the time. And I was used to you know, making six-figure trades in Bitcoin and just you know, market order, done. And so I made... And it was, it was like maybe a thirty dollars or $40,000 Litecoin sale and it crashed the Litecoin market. And so I basically ended up losing half of that to slippage, <laughs> but you know, live and learn. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people have experienced that sort of in the altcoin market, certainly if you were early, but still, I mean, we have DeFi and Uniswap and stuff where, you know, you could press the, press the wrong button and, and send something literally to, to zero in a matter of moments. So um, I want to talk about, uh, security basics. I don't obviously, I don't often have the opportunity to have someone on the show who really understands or can explain from, you know, from the lowest to the highest level what people should be doing. So I guess, you know, we have people that are coming into the space for the first time, as I touched on before, they're buying and just leaving it on an exchange. Um, what are the most basic steps that every person who's 
in crypto or just every person in general for their privacy should be taking at least to like maintain some privacy and security. Privacy is a lot harder than security. And, you know, and that is because it mainly comes down to what are the on-ramps and off-ramps that you're using. So I suspect, you know, the vast majority of people are going to be using your standard centralized exchanges, the vast majority of which are doing AML, KYC, you know, at least if you're doing anything more than trivial amounts. So if you want to you know, get in and out uh, of the space uh, through like fiat rails and you don't want to give up all of your identity information, then you either need to do like face-to-face -face trades, which are actually a security risk. And that's where the vast majority of armed robberies happen in this space is uh, meeting people with large amounts of cash. Uh, and, uh, you know, I actually have a whole repository dedicated to, to, you know, keeping track of those type of attacks. Um, otherwise, it gets more technically challenging because you can acquire and dispose of the assets you know, through AML KYC, but then use various technical methods on these networks to either mix the funds or try to hop between different chains. Um, of course, there are costs associated with that and the additional risks of potentially losing everything. And, uh, and really, the, the way that I approach most of the privacy stuff is that I'm, I'm waiting for better privacy. <laughs> I'm waiting for um, you know, improved uh, coin join, improved like uh, aggregated signature stuff so that the, the mixing software is a lot stronger than it currently is. And that's probably another reason why I don't really move a lot of money around uh, is that every time that you do that and every time you transact with someone else, you're, you're potentially giving away a lot of the details of your entire assets. So privacy uh, is actually, I would say, one of the latter things that you should worry about because uh, privacy doesn't matter at all if you have terrible security and lose everything. Right. So from a security perspective, you know, I would, I would recommend keeping as little uh, assets as possible with third parties. Obviously, you know, you've got a lot of people who are probably actively trading and uh, watching your show and they need to have something, you know, available uh, in order to, to make trades on short notice. But, um, you know, that should be only a small part, uh, small part of your stack. And if you have the vast majority of your funds on exchanges, even if they're dispersed between multiple different exchanges, you're at much higher risk than if you have a robust self-custody setup. And this is actually something that I've heard fairly frequently is, people believing that like because they have their funds in many different places that they're uh, safer and it's an interesting conundrum because what you're you're doing is you're you're pushing the risk around you're you're kind of um you're spreading the risk out that you have a single catastrophic event that causes you to lose everything so you are safer from that perspective however on the flip side, what you're also doing is you're increasing the risk that something goes wrong and you lose some portion of your assets. So that's some other like mental math that you, people need to be aware of. So what I focus on is, you know, how do you create one uh, single robust setup that is essentially impermeable and, you know, is flexible enough that we understand that humans make mistakes and we want to make sure that those mistakes, those accidents, those acts of God, nature, whatever, are not catastrophic, but rather are just minor annoyances that you can then recover from. So, you know, there's multiple different, I would say, tiers or levels of what you can do with your holdings. Uh, if all your stuff is on an exchange, you don't actually own any crypto. You have crypto IOUs and you're hoping that that exchange doesn't go bust. And there are the arguments to be made that, you know, you're essentially a creditor to that exchange, but you don't even have creditors rights. Like I think if there's like a liquidation event, you're going to be the last in line to get any yeah. money. I mean, just look at what happened with Mt. Gox, uh, how many years this has been six, six, six years, years ago. Yeah. And there are still people waiting, like there's what, 200, 150, 200,000 Bitcoin that are still just sitting 
with uh, some trust guy in Japan who's trying to figure out what the hell he's going to do with it. So yeah. that's a, and that's a, a good outcome because at least they have something that eventually right. should get it's paid not gone. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, uh, going from there, like the next step is just taking control of your own keys. You can put them into a software wallet. Uh, that's not great. Uh, there's still, you know, a ton of technical hacks and attacks that can happen there. Going to a hardware wallet is really the great next step. And it's fairly easy ledger, Trezor, cold card, what have you. And, uh, and that will protect you from the vast majority of remote, like technical attacks. You're then, still going to be open to uh, social attacks like phishing type stuff is, is what we're seeing a lot more these days because now the, the weak point is the brain and it's the human getting them to press the button to authorize the money to go out. Um, and then the, the other thing that a lot of people don't spend a lot of time thinking about is just yourself is like you are one of your biggest weaknesses and you know not having a uh, a robust setup you know you could lose all of your money like due to a house fire you know if you don't have geographically distributed backups for example and i would say that that is really the the bread and butter and value add of our setup at casa is putting the user into an architecture where they don't have to think about it. They don't have to um, spend a lot of time thinking through everything that could go wrong because we've already done that. And then we, we've created software so that you're just following the instructions in the app, uh, but you also have you know, a client advisor that you can reach out to if you have any questions. And by just following what we have told you to do in the software, you put yourself into a position that I would argue is even uh, more resilient, more robust than a traditional bank setup. Because even you know, if you're putting your gold bars into a vault in a bank, there could be some sort of disaster that causes that building to blow up or, or fall down or you know, fall into a hole if there's a, a giant earthquake that opens up the ground. You never know. But when you have multiple different sets of keys that all come together to secure one stash of, of crypto uh, and you can put those in geographically secured locations, then it's like, unless, you know, the entire side of the country gets nuked or something, you know, you can be rest okay. assured that uh, even if you lose one or two of those keys, you're still going to be able to recover your funds. So that is, that is where like multi-sig is kind of what I consider to like the final technical step, but multi-sig is not a silver bullet. It really depends how you set it up. And, uh, if you set it up the wrong way, it can effectively be the same as single sig. And that's what we had some sort of hard lessons over the years when we were in the early days of doing multi-sig setup is, is finding out how people could screw it up and, and turn it into single sig. Are you sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto, and it's 100% commission-free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 30 top crypto assets, and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank account so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they're offering 5% interest on Bitcoin and 6% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 6%. And there are no limits or lockups, which means your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager on the iTunes or Google Play Store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's investvoyager.com, promo code SCOTT25 for $25 in free Bitcoin and start trading today. Hey guys, I want to take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Electronium, and their amazing new platform, AnyTask.com, a place where freelancers can finally be paid for their work without needing a bank. Freelancers match directly with potential clients and receive ETN as payment. Even better, ETN can be spent in over 2,000 physical and online locations worldwide. A lot of companies talk the talk of mainstream adoption, but Electronium is truly walking the walk. They're banking the unbanked worldwide and offering opportunity to those who lack access to the resources that many of us take for granted. 
In the next few months, they're also adding more in-app purchases, including local food and supplies, paid TV, gaming, gift cards, and much more. If you'd like to learn more, head on over to electronium.com. That's E-L-E-C-T-R-O-N-E-U-M.com. Yeah, I think that the real light bulb moment for me, well, light bulb moment one was getting SIM swapped, obviously, and having people attack me and multiple times and trying to hack me and realizing that this was a real threat and that I couldn't take it casually. But then when you actually start to secure yourself from that, you realize, and the real light bulb moment, as you said, is realizing what a point of vulnerability you are. And for me, that was the biggest one. If I die, if my house comes on fire, if anything, like you said, we all, you know, if you're in ERC-20 coins and stuff, you probably have coins in five, six, 10 different places. How's my wife going to find that? How are my kids going to find that if we're both gone? It sends you down the trap hole. That's what led me largely to you guys. You know, we, we've discussed this at length. I was extremely impressed at how easy the process was because I've, you know, it, it seems very daunting at first to engage, to even make the decision to go multi-sig because, you know, you three of five, you're going to have to set up five wallets and you're going to have to disperse them. But you guys, like you said, I mean, you have someone who holds your hand literally the entire way. I mean, I feel like you know, the people at your company are my friends who check in on me once a week to make sure that I haven't done anything stupid. It's, it's amazing. I mean, so you have gotten to that point, right? I mean, you feel like now you have the product. Yeah, I mean, it, we try to strive for like a private banking experience. You know, if if you have a, a high net worth that you need to secure, you know, traditionally high net worth individuals they have private bankers who manage all the aspects of their financial life. And we wanted to provide the same type of experience from a service perspective, but do better than that because we don't want to actually control your money. You know, we don't want to be a single point of failure where we could be coerced or we could screw up or even even have like uh, an internal employee attack. Uh, you know, there have been exchanges and other providers that have had rogue employees that have ended up stealing lots of money. So this is it's a high stakes game, and we just want to help people help themselves. That makes sense, and so. I mean, I've obviously, I said I've been SIM swapped and hacked, but uh, you've really, really gotten a a big taste of the worst of the worst in in this, right? I mean, I remember reading the New York Times article about how you took yourself completely off the grid. Um, I know that the SWAT team came to your house a few few years ago. I mean, can you talk about those experiences, what happened, and then how they sort of shaped your view, I guess, why? I mean, I think it'll tell show people why you're so serious about privacy and security. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, I did not really like walk the walk when it came to privacy until I had, you know, the massive jarring event that made me realize how exposed that I was. Uh, you know, essentially rising to prominence during one of the bull runs, uh, it, it results in more people paying attention to you. And this is a common celebrity problem, of course. Uh, traditional celebrities who have millions of people paying attention to them, it's just a law of large numbers where eventually there are going to be some unhinged people who are willing to do things that you wouldn't have considered. And, and so that's when you know eventually someone figured, hey, this guy's been in Bitcoin for a long time. Maybe I can screw with him enough to extort him. And, you know, they had the technical ability to anonymously place a phone call to my local police department and pretend to be me, say I had killed people and was, you know, holed up in my house in a like barricade situation with explosives and all this other stuff. So, Essentially, uh, they hacked the system, not only from a technical level, but they understood that it's actually very easy if you say the right words to get a large amount of lethal force uh, targeted at really anyone you want. At least in the United States, this is easy to do. Yeah. And it's, um, it's a... It's really an asymmetric uh, type of attack where you know the the person who did did this probably spent less than a hundred dollars on like the technical aspects to to be able to get away with it, and in exchange, you know they were essentially able to probably use hundreds of thousands of dollars of public resources to shut down my entire neighborhood for the morning and and then you know subsequently 
who knows how much in like investigation uh, man hours got spent trying to find them and failing. And um, yeah, that's when I realized that if you're in the space, then you are a target, uh, you know, not only digitally for SIM swapping stuff, but potentially also physically. And while the, uh, like the project where I keep track of physical attacks, I think there have only been three or four dozen documented. I know there have been plenty of other undocumented because most people, uh, and like after this happened to me, I had several people reach out to me privately and tell me the same thing had happened to them. And I was like, well, why the hell didn't you tell anybody? Well, yeah, they're scared. They don't want to become a target again. And the other issue is that of course, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't go into all the details of what happened until a year later after I had burned down my entire life and moved to a new secure location where I felt like, okay, now I can actually talk about it. And for a variety of reasons, of course, that's not an option for a lot of people. So unless you start out, you know, in the crypto space with really strong operational security, then you're going to end up having to spend a lot more on the back end. Uh, if, if you want to put yourself into a really good, uh, uh, standpoint, I guess, uh, it, it really depends on what you're trying to protect yourself against. And you know, I've written a number of articles on this and, um, it gets expensive. Uh, so it really depends on, you know, how much you think it's worth to you. It's, um, it's a new type of insurance. And, and this is really what I consider, you know, security and privacy, both different types of insurance. Um, there are a number of people who ask Casa, you know, do you offer insurance on the Bitcoin that I store with you? And, my response is, well, you're obviously asking about traditional insurance, which is some sort of legal contract where you hope that they will pay out. And, you know, if, if you follow along, you know, anything in the insurance world, then you know that uh, the insurer will do the most that they possibly can to not pay you out if something happens to you. Obviously, so yeah. in- insurance itself is not necessarily a great insurance um, because the guarantees uh, are are often pretty flimsy. So instead, I think it's better to insure yourself. And the way that you create guaranteed insurance is by setting up a strong privacy, setting up strong security in a way that you're not relying upon, once again, a third party. If you're relying upon a third party for insurance payouts, then they might let you down. And that would be pretty pretty terrible uh, to happen like in your time of need. You were able to completely remove yourself from the system effectively, right? I mean, you, you know, uh, I, if I recall, like, you know, you started a, an anonymous company basically and did everything through the company. You moved, you, you went as far as to buy a burner house, right? I mean, you bought a separate house to have a different address just so the mail could go there and people wouldn't know where you were. I mean, was that sort of an experiment to see if you could do it or was it, were you at the level where you were saying, I need to do this or somebody's going to get, get me. Uh, yeah, it was both. Um, you know, first of all, you know, the, the attack happened near, it was like as the 2017 bull run was really taking off. And so that's when a lot more people were paying attention, including criminals. Um, so I felt like, you know, I had a few years after that of bear market where there were, I assumed there would be less of an issue, but it's always about preparing for the next bull market. Um, whether that's a personal thing or a company thing, it's like, um, you know, this is my second full cycle working in Bitcoin full time. And I can, I can see a lot of parallels. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that we've spent a lot of time the past couple of years at the company doing is basically me telling everybody all the shit that went wrong last cycle and how we need to prepare for it so that we don't get completely overwhelmed, you know, when demand goes through the roof uh, on the next cycle. And so that is going to continue to happen from a security perspective is, you know, if, if there's a 10 X move in the market, then 
the entire world is going to be going crazy. But also what that means that uh, criminals and people who are willing to cause harm to others are going to get more interested in it. And uh, they are going to be experimenting too. So the stuff that I did, it was an experiment to try to push the envelope. And, you know, there were some things that went wrong. And I actually, I went through a whole other cycle um, more recently to basically do it all over again and fix the things that went wrong the first time. And, um, and so then, you know, eventually, hopefully in the next year or two, there'll be another uh, major bull run and we're going to see another new swath of criminal element come in, try to figure out what are the risks and rewards of different types of attacks against people in the crypto space. And I, I know I'm going to be a big target. Uh, so I want to have, you know, an order of magnitude more security and privacy than I think I need so that I can weather those attacks. So it's interesting. There's kind of Bitcoin and everything else when it comes to security. So I know that you guys, you know, multi-sig is a great, is a great strategy for people to secure their Bitcoin, but what about everything else? So uh, it depends from protocol to protocol, right? Um, any of the Bitcoin-based protocols will have the same multi-sig stuff. Uh, it will then just be a question of whether or not your wallet software and hardware supports it. The completely different things like um, Ethereum will, does not have native multi-sig. You basically have to use a multi-sig smart contract. I have blog posts about my experience with that. Uh, it does seem like the uh, Gnosis uh, safe uh, multi-sig smart contract has been well vetted and I have not heard of, of any exploits against it. And I think it's been out there for a couple of years now. So that's probably the best option for Ethereum folks. Um, you know, Monero technically has multi-sig, but as far as I'm still aware, there's not really any good interfaces into it. It's more of a command right. line thing. Um, and you know, the, the further down you get, uh, in the list, you know, the, the smaller, the community, the smaller, the number of developers, the less likely there is going to be some sort of, uh, robust multi-sig even offered to you. So what we've seen instead is, uh, some, some companies and projects have used other types of, um, things that are similar to multi-sig, but they're not actually like on blockchain multi-sig. So uh, you can do things like Shamir's secret sharing. Um, it has its own set of gotchas, but it, it essentially allows you to split up keys. Um, I think there are some companies that are doing uh, multi-party computation systems that can allow you to do the same thing. The, the tricky things about both of those that, is they're novel. Um, and I think like with the multi-party computation stuff, I, I think a lot of it's not even open source. Uh, so you're, it's hard to evaluate, uh, you know, as time Trust. goes by, yeah, as time goes by, we'll, uh, you know, be able to gain more confidence in them if they don't get, uh, exploited. But, you know, there have been exploits. I think there was a, there was a Shamir secret sharing in, uh, some Bitcoin wallet recently, they, they were doing this like social key recovery thing. Um, and basically an, at an attacker, somebody, a researcher figured out how to turn it from a, uh, like two out of three, basically into a single SIG once again. Um, so it's, uh, it's hard to say, you know, this, you know, we, we obviously get people asking us all the time, like, when are you going to add support for X, Y, or Z? And it's just, it's such a heavy lift, uh, both to evaluate and then to build on top of is that, uh, I still feel like we have so much work left to do improving the Bitcoin experience that, uh, I wouldn't want to you know start working on something else until I felt like I was finished, uh, and had the, the perfect polished, uh, Bitcoin vault available for people. That makes sense. And we talked about, uh, I guess exchange security a bit earlier, but, um, at least it's encouraging, I think. I'm not saying it's certainly not the end-all be-all, but that they've added things like whitelisting and, you know, hardware, um, you know, like a Ubico key to be able to... I mean, do you think that the exchanges now are becoming far more secure, at least, than they were before? Or do you still think that they're huge points of failure? I think the exchanges that have been around for a long time... Uh 
are getting more secure, you know, Kraken, Gemini, Coinbase. Um, though I last I checked, Coinbase still had like SMS account uh, recovery and 2FA. And like, there are still plenty of people who are getting SIM swapped and losing their Coinbase funds. And I don't know yeah, why the hell they still even allow that. Every SIM swap that I've heard of, people that I've talked to, myself included, and I didn't even have money on Coinbase, but the first reset email I got was from Coinbase. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's so, definitely the one that, that um, hackers are going for um, immediately when they sim swap. Yeah, I don't know why Coinbase still even offers that. Like as soon as sim swapping started to become a thing, uh, it, was, it was in 2015, I believe, uh, BitGo had SMS uh, options on, on our accounts and we completely removed them. We said, you know what? No more SMS. And we wrote a blog post yes. about it. And, and here we are five years later and there's still huge companies that are you know, protecting money uh, with you know, accounts that can be reset via SIM swapping. So that is kind of ridiculous. I can only assume that Coinbase like, evaluated the, the risks versus, I guess, how much Cost. trouble it would be. <laughs> uh, and they're like, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll have like... Point oh whatever percent of our users get hacked and lose everything, but everybody else should be fine. Right. <laughs> um, yep. So, the yeah, the exchanges, uh, it's security is always a cat and mouse game, right? It's never over. Um, I think even Binance lost like what uh, four thousand or forty. I think it was four thousand yeah. Bitcoin last year. Yeah, um, and. The, the exchanges at least understand the risk better and, you know, they keep the vast majority of their funds in cold storage. So I do believe we're going to continue to see exchanges, uh, hot wallets get hacked. But if, you know, this is a risk that any exchange needs to take into account and basically have insurance fund for, right? So yep. you understand that over a long enough time frame, there's probably going to be an exploit and you just want to make sure that that risk is compartmentalized and that uh, you can essentially pay out uh, on uh, that catastrophe so that none of your users get directly affected. Yeah, I know it's at the point on Binance, uh, at least for, for a consumer where like you can have like an encrypted email, a proton mail account, and to be able to withdraw funds, you need to, you know, press your Yubico, use a 2FA code and also do an email code. So I, that's a lot more than I remember from before. But like you said, the exchange can still get hacked and your funds can disappear. So that's just a matter of someone yeah. hacking your individual account as opposed to uh, the exchange itself. I just tweeted out, I think yesterday, uh, maybe the day before, uh, a picture of the, uh, the Gox YubiKeys. Uh, they were branded uh, for, for like higher volume uh, traders. And uh, you know, there were 8,000 8, or so users who had those. And uh, I don't think the YubiKey helped in them at all when it came no. down to it. Right. Because if it's the exchange, and I mean, yeah, that's from the other side, uh, unfortunately. So... Um, and, and, and just to get back to it, like at a very basic level, what should people be doing sensibly? Is it VPN? Is it to get to a hardware wallet? And at what point do you have enough, I guess it's person to person, but accumulated wealth or accumulated Bitcoin that you really need to start considering multisig? Yeah. So this is the other tricky thing about uh, security and it's, it's actually you know, it's one of the reasons why we also have a high level of client services uh, for our premium tiers is because security is not a one-size-fits-all thing. It's like everybody has their own particular threat model they're worried about, uh, their own family and friends situation. Um, you know, we have clients who are globe trotters and they don't stay in one place for you know more than a month or two you know everybody has uh different variables that have to go into consideration for their own setup so it's not possible for me to say you know if you have more than x amount of this then you need this setup but rather the easiest way that i try to describe it to people is you need to have an order of magnitude more security than you think you need and by that i mean if you have $1,000 in crypto, then you should act like it's $10,000 and secure it appropriately. If you have 100,000, you should act like it's a million and so on. And you know that is gonna lead different people to different conclusions. And the really tough thing about security, especially when we're talking about like the different uh, 
loss vectors due to mistakes or natural disaster or whatever is that I think people have a hard time doing the like mental math of how likely it actually is. Like it's the default human uh, condition to say, Oh, I'm doing fine now. Uh, nothing's going to happen to me. COVID has <laughs> uh, been a good example of that for people. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and I think, you know, that is probably why uh, a lot of governments uh, have mandatory insurance requirements. You know, if you're going to get on the road or whatever, you, you have to have insurance for these things, even though it's probably never going to happen to you, they know that it's going to happen to somebody. And so, we can't, you know, we can't mandate insurance. We can't mandate high security for anyone in the space. All we can hope is that sort of organically over time, uh, the sort of uh, attack and defense story will continue to force people to understand that if they're not in a good position, they're going to lose everything. But that that's more of a macro perspective. You know, at the micro perspective, if you end up losing everything, then you're probably not going to get back into the game right. or at least not at any substantial level that you then need the same amount of security that you needed before because you're no longer uh, that big of a, a target. So um, putting numbers on things is hard. Yeah. Uh, it's... Um, it's something where we say, I guess, a um, trying to remember the exact saying, but it's like a, a penny is worth a, a, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of, uh, of solution or whatever. I'm, right. I'm sure I'm screwing that up. But the point yeah. being that it's, it's better to, to put in a little bit of effort up front than it is to have a huge catastrophe on your hands. Yeah, it's, it's the old argument is like, well, why am I going to buy a $100 wallet if I only have $150 in crypto? Because you believe it's going to be worth $1,500, like you said, or $15,000 or, or $150,000. I'm curious, after going through all of this, I mean, there's very few people who are doxxed in this space who are not anonymous. I mean, do you regret not just throwing up an avatar on Twitter and a fake name and going about life that way? I mean... No. And the main reason for that is that um, it allows me to do in-person events. And while that's been less of an issue this year, um, <laughs> you know, I, I would say, you know, I was traveling and going to various conferences and meetings, you know, almost every month uh, when, when things were, were still hopping. So um, I do expect that, you know, eventually I will just go completely dark. You know, if, if I feel that, you know, it's mission accomplished and there's, I don't have much more to contribute, then there's not much point in me continuing to expose myself. So that is a long-term goal of mine is, you know, the final step of privacy is to really wipe myself off the internet. Um, in fact, like that would have been the easy thing for me to do after yeah. I was attacked is that I could have just deleted all my accounts and shut up, <laughs> stop making myself a target. But I took the hard path because I still feel motivated enough that I need to contribute publicly and I need to use the reputation that I have built over many years to continue to try to educate people and bring more people into the space because we're not there yet. The, the network effect uh, is not yet strong enough that we are going to achieve world domination. So you're doing it for everyone else. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's a public service. It's pretty cool. Um, I know we touched on Coinbase before and I know we're going to run out of time pretty soon, but um, I'm curious as to your take on, uh, you know, the recent controversy with Brian Armstrong and politics in the work workplace, because I know that you uh, obviously are self-described libertarian mm -hmm. and um, that they're kind of the biggest name in this space and it's been big news. So I'm curious how uh, you feel about it. It's weird, right? Because um, keeping track of like the, the social justice warriors uh, and then the whatever you want to call them, anti-SJW folks, um, I've actually started like getting annoyed by 
everyone um, is basically anyone who gets triggered um, by stuff is like, there are better ways to, to go about uh, trying to achieve your goals. And um, admittedly, I say a lot of things that trigger a lot of people too, but that's also just kind of like my marketing goal is, you know, that's how you get engagement, right? (laughs) Is that you, you say and do controversial things. And, um, you know, from a company perspective, because, you know, I've been running a company for several years now, I completely understand Brian's um, point that he doesn't want people, uh, you know, wasting cycles arguing about politics when they could be working on Coinbase goals or whatever. Uh, At Casa, we don't have anything like that. I mean, we have uh, a chat room called Random where you're free to put whatever the hell you want in there. Uh, But we have not really had anything devolve into, you know, political arguments or anything. So I haven't, I haven't directly had to deal with that. Of course, we're a much, much smaller company and uh, I'm sure not as diverse as Coinbase. So it's uh, ultimately it's up to the, the executives of any company to decide because, you know, they, they are at the top of the pyramid. This is a hierarchical command and a control structure within traditional companies. So, um, you know, he's the dictator, like it or not. Um, he gets to decide what people do because he's the one paying them. Um, I don't, I don't think it's like a freedom of speech issue or whatever, because this is a voluntary uh, agreement between the employees and the employers. And at any time, uh, an employer can say, you know, if you don't agree to these conditions, you know, at least in America, most states are at will employment and you can get uh, terminated for any select few uh, reasons. So I felt that, you know, his, what is it? Four to six months of severance and like seven year option exercise was extremely generous uh, from that standpoint. And I was actually more surprised that only 5% of people took it. But on the flip side, perhaps people feel some of the employees there may feel uh, incentivized to stay on uh, because, you know, Coinbase is pretty obviously going to IPO soon. And so there might be a huge payoff for them to just shut up and, uh, and go with the flow until they can exit. So on the one hand, there's my beliefs, but then on the other hand, that heavy scale of uh, future earnings, yep. <laughs> basically. So uh, last question, do you have any idea or ideas who Satoshi is? Uh, there have been so many theories over the years. Um, I, there's no concrete ones that I land on. Um, I am a hundred percent convinced that it's not Craig Wright, and you know, I've written <laughs> extensively on that point. Um, but you know, I've I've heard theories. Everything from uh, it was a, a an elderly woman at the NSA to it was uh, some like. Um, Asian teenager whiz kid. Uh, personally, my favorite, uh, and and what I hope is that it's actually um, an AI from the future that sent itself back to you know create its own monetary system that it'll use to take over the world when the time is right. <laughs> um, Skynet. <laughs> but you know, I don't. I don't really care. Of course, who Satoshi is, I do care about Satoshi's motivations. And so I have been doing some more research over the past year into the Satoshi pattern and early uh, possible Satoshi mining stuff. I do find that interesting. If you've been reading any of uh, Sergio Lerner's uh, writings, it's a really technical stuff. But what it seems to be pointing to is more and more evidence that Satoshi's early mining was not done out of greed, but was in fact done just to keep the Bitcoin network alive as it was bootstrapping. There's actually reason to believe that Satoshi mined purposefully slower than they could have. And they were just trying to keep the heartbeat of blocks going at a fairly predictable pace until enough other miners came on board. And and then they slowly ramped down uh, their own hash power. So that I think that that is interesting because it 
you know, it provides some evidence that perhaps Satoshi is not planning on spending those early Bitcoin. Uh, whether or not they kept them, who knows? But um, it seems like they certainly were not in it to try to enrich themselves. It's a, yeah, it'd be nice to believe that uh, actually believed everything in the white paper and was more of an altruistic, uh, you know, earth shattering technology than a get rich quick scheme. Certainly. So um, where can everybody follow you guys? Um, check out what Costa is doing most importantly and, uh, you know, consider your services and, and follow you personally after this. Yeah, you can learn all about CASA at keys.casa. It's keys.casa. And on Twitter, I'm LOP, L-O-P-P. And CASA's Twitter is CASA HODL. Yeah, dude, having a four-letter uh, Twitter name is epic. <laughs> There's like value. There's a lot of value in that. <laughs> I wish yeah, I had I, one of those. I got in early on the Twitter game too, but I, I haven't gotten any tokens from that. <laughs> I think I was ahead of Bitcoin on Twitter, actually. I think I was like 2008 or 2009 on Twitter. It's crazy that it's uh, been that long. Well, thank you, man, so much. I really appreciate it. I think um, there's a lot of really good information here that people hopefully will take seriously and start to consider um, privacy and security. Cause I still think that most people don't, I think they just think it's yeah. like their Schwab account or something and they're just going to buy a little Bitcoin and whatever, and even beyond crypto, just, you know, protecting your, protecting yourself. Unfortunately, yes. Uh, you know, this is the privacy versus convenience issue where we seem to be trending towards convenience and away from privacy. So it, it's more work, but I honestly believe that putting the work in up front is going to pay off over the long run. Awesome, man. Well, I hope you don't go completely dark before we get to uh, have a follow-up conversation down the road. <laughs> thanks, thanks again for being here. Thanks. That's dope.